Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Kelly Wallach has worked in the tech and video games industry for over 10 years. She's the founder of the Indie Mega Booth and is now a partner at One Off Ventures. She has also been the longest sitting chair of the Independent Games Festival and is the first woman to hold that title. Kelly is a passionate believer in the strength and impact of community and implementing long-term change to support creative, unique and diverse voices. In our discussion, we talk about investing in gaming and then we spend a lot of time talking about OneUp Ventures founder community and how that community is adding value to the founders. All right, we're recording. Hi, Kelly. Welcome Hi. to the podcast. Thanks <laughs> hey. for having me. Been very Good. excited about this. Yeah, this is going to be really fun, fun to talk about founders, community, investing and changing gaming in investing and all that stuff. So it's all the things, all the things I care about. Yeah, they're really, really interesting topics. Hey, let's get going. And in three minutes, can you share your origin story with the audience? <laughs> like you can go for four minutes. <laughs> okay. Like, yeah, like, yeah, raise a hand if it gets too long. I'll give you the, yeah. the medium, the medium yeah. version. Yeah. I've kind of, I've had people tease me that I sound like I have like a superhero origin story, but yeah. So my background is actually in the sciences. So I went to school for chemistry and when I first graduated, that's the industry that I worked in. And so the first place that I worked at was a nanotechnology company that was started out of research at the university that I had been going to really like that, but really wanted to go to grad school. And so, and I had this dream of going to grad school at MIT and so I had applied to run a undergraduate chemical engineering lab there and ended up getting the job, moved to Boston, loved the job. It was great. Worked with a bunch of undergrads. Did We worked with like professional companies around in Boston and the biotech industry. And uh, yeah, so this this is kind of where the joke about the superhero origin story comes yeah. in. So the, that lab, there was a maintenance room across the hallway from the lab and they were doing some testing and a steam pipe exploded and like destroyed the lab, essentially, <laughs> like <Okay>. flooded <laughs> the whole sub basement of the building, melted the tar on the roof. Like it was like this huge ordeal. And so that job kind of turned into this like insurance claims adjustment job. <laughs> <laughs> not not something that I had dreamed of doing. And so I, I ended up taking a job at a biofuel company after that, where I took some folks that I had been doing research with at the lab at MIT, and we did that. And I'm on some patents and worked at that for a little bit, but I was just kind of getting to this point where I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and so I was kind of debating about making a career switch or moving into a different part of the industry. And I really had wanted to always run a company. So I was thinking about starting a biotech company and taking some of the folks that I've been working with with me. And then around that time, I was still in Boston and I had a friend who was interested in getting in the games industry. And so I had started going to a lot of local video game meetups and there was something about it. I just really, and this was mostly around the indie scene. And I just like really fell in love with the types of people who are working in the, that scene at the time. It was a lot of like, they're very entrepreneurial they're very creative they kind of like come from all over the place people are like I used to do physics I used to be a musician I used to be an installation artist you know and they were kind of like on the fringes of all of these other industries and then ended up like coming together in this scene that combined technical art creativity and 
yeah, running businesses and entrepreneurship. And so I was like, okay, maybe I could like try this out. So I ended up getting a job at a place right outside of Boston that was like a contract company that worked on, we made some games, we did enterprise software. It was, you know, like web development. I got hired as an admin assistant as initially and then got trained as a project manager. And then that's kind of like where I learned more of software development, game development, game design. I had had, I understood how to program and I was always into computers and playing video games and things like that. So it wasn't like a total stretch, but it was definitely something that was new to me. <laughs> and yeah, so I really enjoyed that. And then around that time, I started also going to a lot of uh, game conventions, PAX in particular, which is the Penny Arcade Expo. I went to the very first one that they ran in Boston. And then I was volunteering with a, a company doing the one in Seattle. And the idea had come up from one of the teams about doing like a indie area because at that time at PAX West, they had opened up the sixth floor and put all the indie developers up there and like there just wasn't traffic and everybody was kind of like, what's going on? And, you know, all these people are spending millions of dollars on these booth spaces and we're kind of like left of the wayside. So yeah, so the idea around like the concept of what became the Indie Mega Booth later was kind of born out of this area called Indie Alley and then some local friends from Boston and I kind of got handed off the role of logistically running it. <laughs> and I was interested yeah. in it because I was like, oh, this is a great way to like meet more people in the games industry and learn about how this works, organize things. I love organizing stuff. So that was really fun for me. Yeah. And that first showcase, we had 16 teams. It was kind of this like, oh, are we going to do it again? It was pretty fun. And then the next, then like the next time it was like 32 companies and I was like, okay, we're like doubling in size. And then it stopped kind of being like, oh, are we going to do this again? And more was like, how do I do it? Like, how do I get my friends in? Like, how do I apply for the next one? Yeah. So that ended up being what became the Indie Mega Booth, which is the company that I ran for the last like decade or so. It was running for about nine, nine, 10 years before I put it into hibernation during the pandemic. And we worked with over 800 studios during that time, all indie developers. And we worked with all the major platforms holders and publishers. We had grant and scholarship programs. We ran networking events. We organized events globally all over the world. So we did stuff in Europe, China, Japan. We helped co-organize BitSummit for a handful of years and just kind of like, I guess, took this thing on the road, you know, and we're really like kind of like a hub for indie developers to get to know and meet each other, knowledge share, get like a foothold into the industry. We had a really active community around all of it as well, too, which translates into the work that I'm doing with the One Up Fund now. Yeah, it was something that I really love and, and care about. And so that was kind of like my, <laughs> I guess my my way of ended up starting a company is it it not how I expected it was going to be, but ended up being something that a lot of people really cared about. And at the time was like more work than my regular day job. So I'd, I'd run it when I was working at that company for about like a year or so before I ended up just like quitting that and running the mega booth full time. And then during that time, I was also got appointed as the chairperson for the Independent Games Festival, which is an award ceremony for independent game developers. It's held at GDC each year. And I ran that for seven years, which I think is the longest run, <laughs> the longest chairperson tenure, I guess. I was also the first woman to run it as well, too. And so that's something I worked on reorganizing how we did the judge and jury selections and added the all control GDC award, which we did for a few years. I just stepped down from that position just last year. So like I said, been doing that for the last seven years. And then about four years or so, three, four years ago, Ed and I got connected up, Ed Freeze, around the concept of the One Up Fund, which I know we're, we're going to talk a lot a bit more about on the, the podcast. And so I had been running the community component of that for the last like three or so years. And then earlier this year came on as a full-time partner in the fund. Can you actually expand on like how the early discussions with Ed about like working on the community for One Up 
yeah started. yeah definitely um yeah i also like would be interesting to hear was this kind of like an early idea of ads how did that all form up and it would be great if you could introduce one up first yeah. off So to back up a little bit, so Ed, uh, he was at Microsoft for a very long time and helped run and build the Xbox department and launched launch the first original Xbox and then headed up or worked on the publishing side for Microsoft for a long time. So he's like well-known in the games industry. I didn't personally know him because I'm very far on like the indie side of the industry. And so we got connected up through a mutual friend. And at the time, I didn't really know too much about investing, especially in the game space. It was something like when I first started in the games industry and I asked people about how games were funded, it was like laughable that a VC would put money into a game, especially like an indie sized game. <laughs> and like I said, especially on the indie side, there just really wasn't very much exposure to investment. And when it was, it was normally through like incubator programs or somebody kind of dipping their toes into it. And then we all get a bunch of like weird stories about what happened later. And so it was just like not something that I had a lot of experience experience with. But when Ed and I were talking, I just, I really felt like our values very much aligned on our goal, like on his goals and what became our goals for the fund. And that was around, he comes from like a developer focused background and I come from working with developers as well too. So it was very much about like what's good for the industry, what's good for the developers. There's a really high focus on diversity and meaning like diversity of founders, diversity of genres, diversity of platforms, just having this really broad kind of like portfolio approach. And then this community component to it, which like I said, you know, I feel very passionate about that kind of work and have been doing it with the mega booth for a very long time. And So he really wanted to connect up the founders and build this community that was really open and and had a high level of trust where people could like help and share and support each other through the process of being a founder. And the other thing, which I think was like a little weird at the time, but I'm I'm not totally sure, I think was that we would like only invest in content. So we only invest in video game studios that are making video games. So not platforms or tech or things that are adjacent to video games, which I think, you know, everybody's strategy is different. But I think at the time that was maybe a little weird, <laughs> but it was something that Ed and I had, had a lot of experience in and felt very passionate yeah. about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so this was something that Ed had approached me with this concept and he was actually approached by one of our largest LPs. Um, they had like approached him and like wanted to get a venture fund going as a way to connect with more developers. And so he had kind of come up with what he wanted this concept to be based on his experience with doing portfolio management and, and publishing and stuff at Xbox. And then my, my goals around like the community side of it and what we could do to help push the industry forward. I think like whenever I'm talking to founders about one-up ventures, like the talk goes to the founder community, Yeah, which is a big component, definitely. Yeah. Can you elaborate on what this community is and how that became such a great value add for the founders? To kind of give a, a little bit of like background on it. So the, the goal is, is that we do 50 investments per fund. So we just actually finished up the 50th investment out of the first fund and, and we're, we're, we're um, starting to invest out of the second fund. So there's 50 like studios, I guess, per a cohort or per a fund. Like high level, what we want to do, like I mentioned, is to connect up the founders so that they can talk to each other, help support each other, knowledge share. Like I said, I had seen that in the indie scene and it's actually very prevalent because the teams are so small and you're very isolated. Like we were talking before recording about working from home and working remotely. Indie studios have primarily almost never worked in offices because they're very expensive. So to kind of fill this like social and professional networking need and community and camaraderie, building up local communities is actually pretty common. And so for me, I understand the value around that. And I think the studio founders and stuff do as well. 
So there's that kind of like, I guess I want to say like emotional component to it is like having this space where everybody can be connecting with each other. But then technically what it looks like is we have Slack channels where folks are really active and they can ask questions and chat in there. We started we started doing virtual meetups basically as soon as the pandemic started. Like we had done a handful of investments prior to the pandemic. I'm used to mostly building communities physically and then turning them into virtual communities or like virtual physical and then virtual again. Um, so this has kind of been a bit of an experiment for me to for it to be being done fully virtual. So we started doing just like kind of impromptu Zoom meetups because everyone was like, I don't know what's going on. Like I had to close my whole no. office, like everyone's kind of panicking. So I was like, okay, let's like get us all on a call together so that we can try and like help to support each other and figure out like how are different people handling the situation. And that turned into us running virtual meetups every like two to three weeks for basically the last three or so years now. So we do those very regularly. We also started running like workshops. So the last few years, we've done a diversity, equity, and inclusion workshop, and we work with a company and then we provide consulting hours to the team so that they can help to like kind of assess where they're at as, as a studio goes. We're working on one now that's around like burnout and founder wellness and how do you kind of balance and manage those things. And that's going to be a similar program to the DEI work. And then we have a lot of different programs that we do. Like we purchase data and analytics from like Sensor Tower and Newzoo, and we give teams access to that. We have like purchasing programs and like Ed and I both have good connections within the industry. So we try and work with as many different partners and, you know, our different LPs and things to see like kind of what's the best way that we can connect folks up with programs. Again, this is something that I'm, I was familiar with doing with the mega booth where like we would partner with as many people as possible. And then it's like, okay, if 5% of people want this program, 5% want this program, you know, everyone's kind of able to get something on both sides of it. So like the, the platform holders, publishers, like all those folks, you know, are able to get their programs out there, meet up with the, the teams and companies and games that seem like it's a good fit for them and then vice versa. So kind of taking that strategy into the the one up fund as well, too. So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of letting communities shape what they want. Mm. So I'm, I'm kind of don't really put a lot of like, okay, it's going to be this and it's going to be this and it's going to be this. I'm a little bit more as people are like, hey, like I'm really want to use this program. Like, do we have something around that? And I'm like, we can. So, you know, I'll go and I'll, I'll see if I can make those connections and get it working for everyone. Things like the DE&I workshop, that's something that I think is important to a lot of our founders. But for me personally, you know, I feel like culture and culture building and good foundations within side of a studio are very important. And I feel very strongly that it's important to do that early and to, to be intentional about it. So things like that, you know, it's like, I want to bear like lower the barrier to entry for your teams to be able to get access to that kind of work, or just to think about it early on. Cause I do believe that in the long run, it's healthy for the company. It's healthy for us. Like it'll be better for them to get acquired. It'll be better for uh, hiring. So I feel like there's like a good ethical and business case <laughs> yeah. for those yeah. things to be done. Yeah, it sounds like you're definitely keeping yourself busy with all of this <laughs> stuff going on. It's amazing stuff, to be honest. Are you sort of hosting or facilitating all of these by yourself at the moment? Or do you actually have a team to run the, the community or to facilitate the community? Yeah. So another thing that I didn't mention was we also started doing in-person meetups. So we, we've been doing like dinners and things at events. And then we we hosted our first 
hope soon to be annual one-up retreat, I guess is what we're kind of calling it. And that was like a two-day sort of on-conference style, corporate retreat style event with all of our founders, which I'm just like so thrilled for it to have finally happened. It's something that like really fills my cup. I love seeing people interact in person and just kind of the energy and camaraderie that you get from that. But yeah, so right, it's a very, very small team. So I still run all of the community work. I mean, Ed, you know, pitches in on that stuff as well too. And then, like I said, you know, I moved into doing the investing and, and fundraising side of stuff as well too. That's a little bit more, you know, I'm kind of like learning as I go, but yeah, so it's me, it's Ed and then Chris Wheaton, who's our fund administrator. And that's essentially the entire team. Uh, So this is kind of from my background and working in a small bootstrapped indie sized company is, you know, we got really good at systemizing things and thinking about like, how do you, how do you have the most amount of impact with, with a small team? And what does that look like? And so that's something that like, as I've, so before when I was doing this community work, I was like part-time on it. So I was doing, running the mega booth and working on IGF and things like that. And then doing this as kind of like a a part-time project. And so now that I'm full-time, you know, I have more time to put to it, but also like we're expanding into a second community and and all that. Right now, I feel like it's it's pretty good. Like it, I still feel like I have a much better work life balance than I did when I was running the mega booth <laughs> and doing that yeah. full time. I kind of joke that like even during the pandemic, I went from like having like five jobs to like two jobs. <laughs> so I'm mm. kind of someone who I like to be busy, but I, I don't really like it to consume all of my time. I just like to be very smart about how and where I'm putting my energies into and. That's actually something I really appreciate working with Ed as well, too, is that I think he's really good about that as well. Like, I I will definitely make extra work for myself, but I feel like Ed has a really good approach to it where he's like not creating extra work for himself or expecting me to create extra work for myself. It's more about results oriented work and less about just like being busy and like what's a good use of your time. So I, I feel like we're actually at a pretty good point with that, you know, and I think around like things like running an in-person retreat in the future, I'll probably have someone more like an event coordinator or something come on to help around around the work. But I really wanted to like do it myself and understand what was going into it and what it would look like and kind of have the outcome be what I wanted so that it's easier to have someone help, you know, with that in the future. I wanted to ask like what does the first month look like for a founder who just raised financing and there's one up ventures invested and they're joining the community. What does that first month look like regarding like the channels, the activities? First month, you know, we've normally been in contact with the team for some amount of time at that point. All the paperwork is done, everything's transferred over. And so I'll send out like an intro to the teams with information about signing up. I love using forms for things. So there's a handful of forms that I have them fill out so that I can get the information that I need to coordinate things later and contact information and primary and secondary contacts and studio bios and all that kind of fun stuff. And then links to resources for programs that we run. So like I said, the DE&I hours and, you know, access to like Sensor Tower and New Zoo and kind of like all of the things that we have available to the teams. And then we add them into the Slack channel introduce them to everyone, add them onto invites for all of the events that are up and coming and kind of help to answer some questions, but just kind of like dump them into the Slack channels and (laughs) and let them say hello to everyone. Because we are holding the virtual meetups fairly often, normally they'll get to kind of meet people quote unquote in person pretty soon after the first time that they're in the community. So it's kind of like, again, I'm a big fan for community building of creating a container and good boundaries and things, but kind of letting people do what they want with inside of that. So Like we had one team who said that they went through and literally read every single post 
for the last like three or four years. Yeah. <laughs> they don't like chat very often, but I you know, saw them at an event and they were like, it was so much information. It was so amazing. It was so great. They read through the entire archive of the whole history of the Slack channels, which is impressive. So they might be one of the only other people besides me and Ed who <laughs> read every single <laughs> conversation. Some people do that. Some people will start asking questions right away, digging through resources. You know, it's kind of up to them on, on what the participation level is. It, and I will say to the credit of of Ed in particular, when we were first starting the, the first fund and we're trying to do this with the second fund is that it's really important who you have as kind of the founding members of it so that you can start to create a culture of like welcoming and answering questions and being active in the, in the channels and things like that. So that like when people come into the community, it can already start to feel like set a tone, I guess, for kind of like what's expected or like how much like if you ask a question and it's just crickets and it doesn't feel good. But if yeah. you ask a question, you get lots of people chiming in. So that's something that now that we have 50 studios, you know, it's, it's very active. But in the second community, we have like, we're going to have our first meetup tomorrow. I think there's like two people in it right now. So it's oh, a little okay. less of a community and a little bit more of like a hangout, I guess, <laughs> between a, a handful of people. So, but I'm looking forward to like seeing that get built back up again, you know, is yeah. like, cause every community I think is going to have its own kind of like culture and style and flavor to it. Yeah. This is like a, a double clicking question here, but so oh. you're going to separate the communities based on fund or is that like 50, you said yeah. 50 companies. So it's like 50 companies interact together and then another 50. Yeah. Kind of thinking of them as cohorts. And I do want to have mm. some interaction between the communities because I think it's important. So we have like a, a shared Slack channel. I'm calling it the community exchange program <laughs> where they can like ask questions to people in the first community and things like right. the workshops. I think I'm going to open those up to, to everybody in all communities communities because those are more kind of like lectures, you know, or like presentations. So I don't really want it to be that they like can never talk to each other or something. But 50 is it's a it's a pretty big number. It's kind of the sweet spot. And this is something that Ed feels very passionately about. And, you know, I, I agree that 50 is kind of a number where you can build meaningful relationships, but there's also enough people that you have a wide variety of expertise. And so if you start having you know, if we get to 100 or 150 or 200, you know, it's like that kind of community is much different than the the smaller community. And we even had that with the mega booth, you know, like having a mailing list with 800 companies or a thousand people or something on it, you know, is like very different than when it was 50 people or 100 people. And they all they're all good in their own ways. And they serve different purposes. But I think my long term goal is to have kind of like a tighter knit cohort, I guess, and then kind of like a larger community that can also support for varying different types of questions or I don't know, but it'll just kind of be a different, a different vibe, I guess. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. use a technical it's, term. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So like if, if I'm founder who's been with the community for a while, like let's say over six months, how does that look like? How, how do I keep gaining value by being involved? Yeah. So hopefully by that time, you would have already attended a handful of the virtual meetups. Maybe there's been an in-person meetup. Another program that I, I didn't touch on earlier is we do a thing I call it a slush fund where we let folks do local regional meetups, like go grab dinner if everybody's in, like in London for a conference or something, and then we'll, we'll reimburse them for that. And the, the tax my joke, the tax that I make them pay is they have to send a photo of them all, all at dinner together. <laughs> I'm a big fan of taking pictures also yeah. and having group photos taken. And so, so potentially they would have attended a local meetup. Those are happening more often. We're actually doing a San Francisco one again tomorrow. I don't, there's a lot of community things scheduled for tomorrow. And so hopefully they would have had a chance to participate either in the Slack channels, a virtual meetup, some sort of in-person meetup. You know, I think what's kind of interesting about 
the community stuff is that we can keep adding on programs and doing things. And like I said, you know, I do try to add on kind of these bigger scale programs as we're going and as the needs of the community go. But there's always kind of something happening when you're running a studio, right? Like it's it's never like you solve all the problems or that everything is just done at some point. And so there's always just people are in different stages of whether they're fundraising or not fundraising and topics around, okay, like maybe it's foundational culture and, and that early stuff. And then later it's like, okay, we've, we started to scale up, like, how do you deal with scaling up? So I think that as the companies are kind of like growing and changing and things are happening, there's always kind of changes in topics and the, and the way that we run the, the virtual meetups and the, the kind of on-conference thing, it's a little bit of like an open Q&A format. So people can just ask questions and pose them to the community. And so there's always something that's kind of top of mind, like the last uh, meetup we had around like using AI generated art. So it's like, that's not a thing that anybody would have really been talking about a few years ago. So to me, it's mm -hmm. like, there's always something that's like building and changing and growing with inside the studios, which means that there's always something building and changing and growing with inside the, the community as well. The evolution of this community. So you're probably thinking a lot about like what you want to do next, like bigger plans. Yeah. What do you have on the roadmap? Yeah. So for the the second community, like I said, this is the first time I'm I'm on as a full-time partner in the fund as well too. So I get to be involved a lot more in the decision-making process around what companies are getting invested in and, and what that looks like, which just for me as a personal evolution and is, is really interesting. I mean, Ed and I were always talking about the investments, but I wasn't kind of like involved at the same scale that I was before. So for me right now, the focus is mostly on like building and growing the second community. And like I said, like making sure that there's a good, strong foundation, making sure that they feel supported and kind of getting the benefits of like what we're hoping out of the community, even when it's still small and growing. And then, like I had mentioned before, I'm really a fan of like systemizing things and coming up with like, how do you do a lot with a little? And so getting an opportunity to kind of think about like, okay, like now what happens when there's two separate cohorts, like how many workshops are we running? What is going to turn into a form that used to just be an email or like, how are we collecting quarterly reports and things like that? So for me, it's kind of like a little nerding out on the like systemizing and, and logistics side of it. And, you know, in the long, in the long, long run as well too, you know, I'd really like to have these studios and communities and like what we've built start to influence like the industry overall. Like I get a lot of questions about the community component of it, what it's all about. And I just really like hope that the spirit of that gets picked up by other folks or other communities or people start building and creating their own things. My bigger goal is that it's like pushing the industry forward in a direction that I feel is like really positive and collaborative and, and supportive. I'm thinking constantly about like how to develop my own work yeah. with elite game developers to actually provide more value. Yeah. And like, I, I love, yeah, like talking to other venture funds and learning about what they're doing or hearing from teams about ways that they like, like programs or feel supported by other partners that they're working with, you know, and like I said, always kind of like growing and changing and building upon what we have to like make it better for the teams. Cause when it comes down to it, like that's the goal is to support these founders so that they can make awesome, amazing studios and cool games and impact players and like what people think of games and what people think of audiences and all that. Most of my career, even when I worked in the, in chemistry and in the sciences was a lot of supporting and, and building infrastructure to help people like realize their vision and their dreams and their goals. And that's something that I just like feel very passionately about and feel, it feels very rewarding for me to like see 
like now we've had a few years of watching these studios and teams grow. And like from the mega booth, I had like 10 years of time. So it's like being able to hear 10 or so years later about like the impact that you had on a studio that you like love their work from when they were like early and just starting up and a few people and didn't know what they were doing is really cool (laughs) to be able to witness that and to be in a position where you're helping to facilitate that in some ways. Like it's a really interesting position to be in, in the industry, I think. Yeah, it is. It is. I wanted to talk to you about the the investing work that mm-hmm. you're now getting more involved on the on the the deal side as well. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to change about gaming investing? Like what trends would you like to see more prominent in the world of gaming VC? Yeah, so in my my little notes for this question, I put diversity with like lots of question mark, or lots of exclamation <laughs> points after because yeah, yeah. I just sure. I, I feel like And I feel like that can mean a lot of different things. And I think one of the things that I just, I feel really strongly about is that I think it's important for founders and game studios to look like their audiences and to have a diversity level of their audiences. Games are global. Everybody plays games. You know, like when I was younger, I kind of felt like, okay, there was like gamers, you know, and then like other people, but it's really not that way anymore, especially for younger people. It's like the idea that you're a gamer or not a gamer doesn't really kind of like mean anything. Like everybody plays something, right? Especially with how big the mobile market is. And even people who don't think that they play games are like, oh, I also play like 40 hours of Candy Crush a week. And it's like, okay, that's pretty like hardcore for like not playing video games, right? And so, you know, I think that 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 part of it is is the future of like what the games industry is going to look like. And so I think from an investing perspective, I think it's really important to invest in founders who reflect those audiences, right? So I'm talking like women-led companies, people of color, people from historically marginalized communities. Like I think that, and, and being able to look at the investment with a different lens, you know, and seeing it uh, through the understanding of like what challenges they might be facing, or they might be the first time that a company is targeting a certain kind of audience, right? So it's a lot of kind of like newness, which I don't want newness to equate to like risky, right? Because I think that there's things that can be risky, but I just feel very, very strongly that like, this is not one of them and that this is just like the future of where we're going as an industry. And so when I first was thinking about like during the pandemic, like what am I going to do next in my career? And what do I want to focus on? The opportunity to be able to work on the investing side and the funding side of the industry to me felt very important and impactful because towards the end of the mega booth run, especially, it just really mattered on who was getting money and who was making the decisions about who got the money, right? And like what kinds of games are getting funded and what sort of studios are getting funded. And so for me to be in a decision-making position to be able to help to like influence that and help to support that, I just think is like incredibly powerful and can be very impactful. And so that, that for me is something that I just feel, yeah, very strongly about. And I feel is really important. And I do think that a lot of funds are focusing on it as well too. And there's a lot of awareness around it. You know, I think that investing in general and finance is more conservative, I would say than like, I would fiscally conservative and just conservative in general than like the deep indie scene, (laughs) which is super diverse, very, Mm. you know, artistic, creative, like, you know, it's kind of already on the fringes of things. So I feel like there's a lot to kind of like be nudging forward in in the VC space and in the investing space and like how we really think about that and look at look at it and look at the types of founders and like I said, what their challenges might be. And then also like, how do you support them afterwards, right? Like just giving someone money doesn't really solve problems if like they didn't grow up with good financial literacy or they don't have the kind of support system. So you think about stuff like even the term friends and family round, like 
I didn't grow up with money. Like I don't have friends and family who have given me money to like start a company. Right. And so, and like, where do you build those networks and how do you meet those people? And what does that look like? So I think that there's a lot of growth and expansion to do and the kind of pipeline to getting people to a point where they are pitching to investors. And then once they do have the money and the finances, how are you supporting those teams past that? Like, how are you setting them up to succeed and filling in the gaps that they might not have as a founder or as a, as a studio and as a team? that other people might have access to, to more resources or, or privilege or however you want to phrase it. So that, that for me is something that I feel very strongly about. And like, and one of the things that I really love about working with the one up fund and with Ed is that like, we're both very like aligned on that and always like looking for that. And like I said, it's, it's because I think it's morally and ethically a good idea, but also I just feel very strongly that it will make a lot of people a lot of money. Like, like I just think that there's so many lost opportunities, just like sitting on a table somewhere because it's getting pitched to people who just like don't get it or they're not the audience or they don't really understand it. And like I said, I think that that's, that's changing, but sometimes I look at stuff and I'm just like, oh, this would be so great. And, and it's because I'm the audience, right? So like, I understand it and I get it. And for me too, like I have experience with this from doing curation work for like 10 years. I've looked at probably six to 800 games a year for like 10 years, right? And always curating a collection that would re- that was specific for lots of different people, right? Like it was never just like games I wanted to play or games that I think this person would play or this person would play. It was like, what do I think the breadth and the scope of the industry is and the breadth and the scope of the audience? And how do we build a curated showcase around that? And I feel like with the One Up Fund, that's kind of our approach to the portfolio as well too, is like, how do we build that portfolio that like reflects what we think is going to be the what it what reflects like what's happening now and what we think like may or may not happen in the future and having like all of those possibilities available and really looking at it like with a curatorial eye in a a way yeah yeah i think the biggest opportunities are exactly in the spaces where we still haven't tapped yet all the different kind of genres that like a more diverse audience would want to play so even though we're talking about the the industry being so huge already yeah. But there's still so much <laughs> there's still so much room to grow I agree and like yeah. I feel like this is something I could talk about for an entire podcast but like just a quick like yeah. one of the kind of biz- biggest examples of this for me is the sims I'm a huge player of the sims it's you know like 70 some percent female audience it monetizes crazy well it's been it's like one of the biggest games ever like I think the sims 2 or 3 like pets expansion is still like one of the top selling pc games yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so for a, I think they moved it to Steam now, but like you would for a long time, you could only play it by going through the EA Origin store. And as a player, so you have this platform where you have the super high amount of women logging into your specific platform, monetize really well, super passionate about this game. There's literally nothing else for me to play on that yeah. platform. I mean, there's some stuff, yeah. but it's like I'm getting advertised like FIFA and Battlefield and some racing game you know, which have just nothing, no overlap, nothing to do with what a Sims audience may or may not want. And to me, I was just like, oh, like, that's just so much money and opportunity. And like, yeah. like, oh, like, I just, yeah. it makes me want to like pull my hair out, you know, because it just like, yeah. and, and people are like, oh, well, it's hard to make another Sims. And it's like, yeah, but you don't even have to make another Sims. You just have to make something that people who play Sims would also want to play. You know, <laughs> So yeah. I think, you know, you think about something like that. And that's like, yeah, if somebody, I think that, and that's, a you know, one of the theories on why Stardew Valley ended up doing Rellos. It's basically like a Harvest Moon style game for PC, which there just wasn't something like that available. So it's like, mm. you have this massive, massive audience and literally no competition. 
(laughs) So you make a game and now it's like this one guy who made this game is like, hit it big. Right. And he's amazing, like great with the community and everything, you know, like it seems like a very deserving situation, but I think that there's a lot of opportunities like that, that if just, even if just someone made anything at this point, it would do really well. Yeah. We would probably both want to back those kind of founders. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A thousand percent. Every time I see something like that, I'm like, yes, please. (laughs) Ellie, what, what is like the hardest thing for you on your investor path like what what has been the hardest thing like has there been any lessons learned yeah i mean so many i i think one of the hardest things for me is that it was like very intimidating it's it's not an area that i had a ton of familiarity with i don't have a business background i don't have a finance background i like i said i didn't even grow up around money and so talking to all of these people who have like MBAs and they have this whole language they speak and like just even things, you know, around like the way that I like women are socialized around like money and handling money and finance and financial literacy. Like I work with a a financial planner who's a woman and like her whole goal is to like help to like educate and support women on like their finances and financial independence. And there's a really interesting TED talk where this woman addresses that where like women have wealth or like when they do have wealth and they do have this ability to be investing, they're not investing at the rates that men are investing. And some of that is being socialized around like, oh, well, who am I to tell you what's good or not good or what's this or what's not that? I think for me, that's kind of less of it because I don't know, I just kind of I try to like be my authentic self, you know, and like voice my opinions and I have a bunch of them. And so, you know, I feel like I'm pretty clear on like what kind of stuff I would want to invest in or what I want to do, but then getting into like the larger kind of VC community, like I said, I think was really intimidating for me. It's also the first time in a long time I've had to build up a new network of people. You know, I'm kind of used to everyone kind of knowing who I am or what I've worked on or what I've done. And then I get into like working in the VC space and some people have some people have heard of it, but like I was in knee deep in the indie scene, which is like not a lot of crossover with the VC space. So yeah. it's meeting a lot of new people, taking on a new role, you know, like stepping into like a new phase of my career was kind of intimidating. You know, all that being said, I would say that a, a large like almost everyone that I've met in the VC space has been like very welcoming and really cool. The work that I've been doing with Ed, like I said, has been great. Like a lot of the fears that I had about I was a solo founder, you know, and ran my own thing for a super long time. So I was like, oh, I'm going to like work with someone again. But Ed has been amazing. I actually kind of feel like if I had had a manager or something like him before I started my company, maybe I wouldn't have, (laughs) you know, I feel like sometimes starting your own company is born out of frustration of like, I could do this better. But yeah, he's very, very good at what he does and, and has been doing a really great job of like helping to like guide me, but also let me like grow and flourish and and trust me to do like we're we're partners right like it's not like there's a, a bit of a you know like he has more experience in the investing and fundraising side but it's still like he treats me as an equal partner in this and like values and trusts my opinion on things and i feel that like i've been building up good relationships with our partners and the lead investors that we work with you know and they've all treated me very well and like value what i have to say and like what the one at fund is doing and everything so some of those fears were unfounded but it was still like I don't know, it's still tough to to kind of be like, okay, I'm going to like do this new kind of intimidating, unfamiliar thing for me in a space that I'm not 100% comfortable in. But like I said, I feel very strongly about the kind of impact that I could have. And so I really wanted to like, try it and try my best and see. And now that it's coming, not quite a year, but kind of nine, 10 months or so into it, I'm starting to feel a lot more of that, of that footing. But the ramp up to it was, yeah, it's tough. It's a scary situation. Yeah. 
yeah, so, <laughs> it's always yeah. hard to be new at something <laughs> yeah i guess so yeah that's really true like when i started doing angel investing it was really frightening to think about <laughs> losing money but like i think like i i didn't have any options to be honest like i wanted yeah. to get into like working with like several startups and founders and have the love for for the entrepreneurship and I, yeah like, that was the the price you have to pay really to, yeah yeah. And it's funny, like the the losing the money part. I think that's another thing that was a little stressful for me is just the scale of the money that mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, in a fund or that investing. I mean, we're doing relatively small-ish investments, like our, our standard check size is 500K. But I mean, yeah. that's like, that was almost the operating budget of my old company, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> or like yeah. per year. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's a little more stressful than I thought to like give money to people, yeah. you know, because I we feel this like, I feel strongly about the way that we're making our decisions and everything, but it's still like when it comes down to it, I'm like, that's a big number and that's a lot of zeros. So I just want to be like extra careful about what I'm doing with everything. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I understand. Yeah. Hey, last question before we go to my regular final questions. Do you, (laughs) are any like words of advice for founders who are looking to raise maybe their first money? Yeah. So there are kind of two things that, and these are just like very practical pieces of advice is one is I would say to kind of plan about six months ish, or maybe a little bit more from start to finish to like, I'm going to start raising to like, I have money in the bank. I think that people aren't quite sure the length that it takes, or they think maybe it'll be really fast or it'll take years and it can take longer and it can take shorter, but I'd say six months is kind of a good amount of time. So to kind of, you know, be able to have that in mind as you're making these decisions and talking to people. The other thing that I would suggest is spending a lot of time on the pitch deck. And it's not because I think that the pitch deck has to be perfect, but I think that it's a really interesting opportunity for you as a founder to like really envision what you're trying to do and what it would take to do it. And most of the time, at least my understanding is when VCs or publishers or platforms are asking you questions while you're pitching to them, it's less about having the correct answer and more about having an answer that you've thought through and that makes sense. And it's really hard to get what you want if you don't know what you're trying to get, right? And so I just think that it's a super good opportunity to almost make like a vision board for your company, for your game, for yourself, for your founding members. And really think about like, what do you realistically need to build what you're trying to do? How many people do you need? How much money do you need? What do you want the culture to look like? How much time is it going to take? And I think the pitch deck can be an opportunity for you to do all of that and get all of that together. And if you go and you present that to an investor, I think that you have a much better likelihood of those conversations being successful because it'll be very clear that you've thought it through and it'll be clear to them what you need and what you want. Something that was very common in the indie space is people being like, okay, I need $22,343 and 15 cents to make this game. And then it's like, and they're like, I'm going to only eat ramen. I'm going to do this. I'm I'm not going to worry about paying rent. And when you, and the thing is like, when you go and you pitch that to a publisher or to an investor or something, there's a, a bunch of different problems with that. One is that it's entirely unrealistic for how much it actually costs to make a game. And, and it kind of shows that you don't understand the reality of like what you're trying to build, you know, and you can maybe do that as like a solo person who's supported financially, you know, in some other way or however you want to approach it. And I'm not even saying that there's anything wrong with that. But if you're going to go and talk to external parties about your project and your team, I think it's better to ask for what you actually need and to figure out what that actually looks like and just try not to have the fear that they're going to say it's too much or it's too whatever, because I think it will actually get you further along because 
they're going to look at it and be like, oh, you know what you're talking about. You know how much this is going to take. And if I give you the money, you're going to do, you're going to be responsible with it. And it's not just going to run out right away, or it's not going to be mismanaged or mishandled. So yeah. So I, I really think that the pitch deck is like a super good opportunity and a good time and space to really architect and think about what you're doing before you just start. Because once you, once you get going, that, that wheel is going to be spinning for a long time. You're not going to get a lot of opportunity to really stop and think and be intentional about what you're going to do. And so like take this time and really value that time as like, as, as, as kind of like a rare opportunity to, to really think and vision and plan and be creative and yeah. And architect like what you're really trying to build. Hey, Kelly, final questions. Um, what's your favorite book and why? <laughs> So I am a pretty big reader. So this is like a hard one for me. And the, there's a lot of different genres and stuff. But there's a book that I read recently, like, like during the pandemic that I just I love, I've actually bought it for a bunch of my friends. And it's called the Feminist Utopia Project. And it's a book that's like a collection of short stories and essays and poems and art that is basically, it's intersectional. And it's, it goes to a bunch of different people and kind of ask like a bunch of different questions about like, like, what is a, what would a feminist utopia look like to you? And like, what does that mean? And I'm a huge fan of thinking about utopia or think or envisioning a positive version of the future. You know, I think we get very bogged down in like, what's wrong? <laughs> and like, what do we not like? There's been some like, I've listened to some TED Talks and some like studies and stuff on this where like, really effective leaders can articulate a positive vision of the future. And then the people that are around them can like take that vision and then decide what they want to do to like work towards that vision. Whereas if you're just talking about like what you don't like or what's wrong, people can get riled up and get angry about it, but there's not too much like action item about it. And it's not very like inspiring or sustainable in the long run. So I'm a big fan of like envisioning, like, what are we working towards? Like, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to get to? There was one essay in there that was a short story about like kind of an example of restorative justice that I just like think about all the time. And so for me, it's like, I think it's, it's important to like, yeah, like envision like what we're trying to get to. And I think that this book just has a lot of like kind of interesting food for thought and interviews and things of like a ton of different perspectives of like, what could it look like? What are, what are we doing? What are we working towards? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I need to check it out. Sounds really interesting. Do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? Yeah, this one, I, I don't know if I have a singular story, but I, I will say that I, I think something that's been an important thread for me is to try, I know it sounds a little cheesy, but try to kind of just like bring my authentic self with me to all of these different roles and different positions and different ways that I've kind of like walked through my career and having like kind of a, a internal set of values and goals that I'm trying to like work towards and just bringing those with me. You know, something that I think that was also kind of like an important, I don't know if it's a story, but like I said, I, I work with a, a, a woman who's a financial planner. I did a lot of like reading and work around my emotional relationship with like money and finances and what does that look like? And I think that that was like a really important um, piece of work for me was kind of overcoming some of the like fears and misunderstandings and confusion and you know because it, it's interesting because money money is a complicated thing and you don't really think of it as something that you have a relationship with but everybody has some kind of relationship with with money and doing a lot of work around what my relationship was with money and what that meant had a huge impact on how I do my work because I think that I was bringing a lot of like fears and misconceptions and things with me into starting a company and it made it hard to grow and build the company over time because it was just a different switch in mentality of of how you 
work with finance or how you deal with money or how you run a business. So I think, I think that those are like a couple of things that were like important, important mm. with me. That's a really good one. <laughs> Some yeah, backgrounds. I, yeah. As I got more into investing, I remember reading psychology of money. I don't know. Yeah. Have you, have you read that one? It's a... No, no, but I, I read one that was called a uh, soul of money, which is kind of like a, I assume a similar thing. <laughs> yeah, this was came out, I think, late 2020 by a venture capital investor called Morgan Housel, who wrote mm. the book. And it goes through all the different ways that people think about spending, not spending, yeah, investing, not investing. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check yeah. it out. Yeah, it's something yeah. that's always kind of a work in progress for me. And I think something that's not... I don't know, like not necessarily discussed very often. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> hey, final question for you, Kelly. What's the best way for the audience here in the podcast to, to contact you and One Up Ventures? Yeah. So I'd say I'm personally best with email, but I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. If you're interested in in pitching to the One Up Fund or have a project, you can go to the One Up Fund website and we have a contact form on there that you can fill out and like upload pitch materials and stuff. And we review those. We look at everything that comes in. So that's a good place to start. Yeah. I'm Kelly Wallach on basically everything. I don't have a cool internet nickname. So if you search me, <laughs> you'll find me somewhere. <laughs> that's perfect. Hey, Kelly, this was so much fun. So many good stuff topics here to cover yeah um, yeah this, amazing. this is great yeah I, I really appreciated the opportunity to talk about these things and I, I loved your questions and how thorough you were like kind of researching stuff beforehand and sending the questions in advance as someone ed calls me a procrastinator as someone who likes to be prepared <laughs> for things i really valued and appreciated yeah. that <laughs> yeah sure yeah i try to get the most value out of like an interview so that's me. yeah yeah that's um, great thank you so much yeah. Yeah, sure thing. Hey, hey, Kelly, have a good day and uh, speak soon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to my guests for joining the show. If you have time, please go and sign up to a newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about. I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.